Are you ready to be transported back to 1800s high society London? Because season three of Bridgerton is now playing only on Netflix. This season follows the story of the Tons resident wallflower, Penelope Featherington, as she undergoes a journey of self-discovery and empowerment where we see her truly blossom. Penn's emotional transformation takes centre stage as her friendship with the charming Colin Bridgerton evolves into something more. For those not yet acquainted, Colin, the charming younger brother of the Bridgerton family, is about to turn Penelope's world upside down. Mm, This is the ultimate good friends to lovers story. From those initial butterflies to when both parties realise there might be something more between them, watch Bridgerton Season 3, now playing only on Netflix. Welcome to this bonus episode of Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart people who love dumb stuff. You're joined by Annabelle Lee, the behind the scenes producer here at Shameless Media. While Mission Zara are on their media break for a couple more weeks, I thought it'd be nice to look back on some of my favourite moments of Shameless interviews. Editing the episodes you guys listen to every week is such a joy, as is hearing the different perspectives from incredible people that I'm sure have piqued your interest too. We've had a variety of stellar guests on the show since In Conversation episodes first began back in 2018. So what better than a deep dive into the archives? Today's theme is women and the media. We know that the mainstream media invisibly informs our ideas of the world. If you turned on your television, you'd think Australians all kind of look the same. Able-bodied, middle-aged white guys, right? It's like, One big Sam Newman Groundhog Day over and over and over again. But what I've personally loved from the In Conversation episodes is hearing from the women who are pushing that dial. Women who want to share their stories and share them unapologetically, whether that be through the lens of womanhood or varying cultural backgrounds or differing physical abilities. I want to start today with the seriously intelligent Jamila Rizvi. What's it like to be blasted publicly or have your disagreements with men become fodder for the media? Jamila is an author, presenter and political commentator who, in 2016, found herself at the centre of a storm with Steve Price on the project right after the Trump election. Here, Jamila talks with Mission Zara when she sat down with them in February 2019 about the criticism that followed from that day. It was the day after Donald Trump won. And, like, for that to be a story on, like, what was the biggest news story in the world, I think just was the Australian newspapers being like, we need an Aussie way in. I know this random people are just disagreeing with each other, which was just ridiculous. That was a really weird day for me, the day Trump won. I had been commissioned by my boss at the time at News.com to write a piece for that day on what Hillary Clinton's victory meant for women. There were a lot of those pre-prepped pieces. Yes. So I started writing it while watching the votes coming in and the votes were coming in. The early returns were good. Oh, the percentage chance of winning, I remember being 85, 15 or something like that. Yeah, even as they started being counted as well. I was really positive. I'm like tap, tap, tapping away on my laptop at 10am in the morning and then it starts going south and further south and all these people are texting me and I'm texting back and going, what's going on? What's going on? By the afternoon, I'm like, I don't need to write this piece. I don't know what I'm doing. And um, 
look, I had a couple of gins because I felt not very happy. <laughs> and then I got a call from the project saying, can you come on and talk? We, we just realised we don't have enough women reflecting tonight on what's happened. And I mean, that's not okay. And I was like, of course, of course. And uh, I went on and I think I was bolshier than I normally am. I usually try and be as polite as I can while being as firm as I can. Because as a woman you always have to be, don't you? Yeah. And I wasn't that night. I got a bit grumpy at Steve Price when he jumped in and answered a question that was put to me and I disagreed with him. And uh, it just went everywhere. I think it became this because it was this young woman of colour and this older white man (laughs) You know, it was such a great microcosm of what was going on more broadly. I still don't know why anyone cared on such a big day, but that went bonkers. Did you care in that moment, you know, in the days afterwards when you are the story on the front page of the paper? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I had no idea it would be a story, I think, which is the same with most social media blow-ups. It wasn't until the next day that I was like, oh, wow, everyone on the internet hates me. Mm. Um, It was, yeah, it definitely took me aback and I was quite overwhelmed. And at that point my um, partner took over my social media and just was like, get off, not good for you, I'm dealing with this. It's interesting. I I, I look back on so many of those little and big blow-ups, I've, I've had a few, and I think what hurts is when you fear there's a granule of truth in what people are saying. So when people say you're stupid, you were overreacting, you were screechy, you acted like a little girl, you were rude, those things you kind of go, oh, maybe, maybe I was. Mm. Maybe I did do that. Maybe I did, did do this. And then People jump on board with, because you're a woman, jump on board with the inevitable aesthetic criticism, like you're fat, you're this, you're that. And then you go, oh, maybe I am all these things that they're, maybe I shouldn't wear blue, like they said, you know, like, oh God. And it worries you. Whereas like the kind of crazy criticism that you know isn't true doesn't really bother you. Slides off you. Yeah. Yeah, Like I I have a Muslim surname and I often get called a, a terrorist on the internet and you just kind of read it and go... I, you know, I'm offended because of the assumption around religion, absolutely. But at the same time, at a micro level, at the me level rather than the macro level, I'm like, well, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> like I, there's no part of me going, yeah. oh, shit, am I? You know, like I'm, I'm am I a definitely clear on that <laughs> yeah. one, you know. Brooke Blurton is a youth worker and mental health advocate who was the first Indigenous Australian contestant to appear on The Bachelor franchise back in 2018. In Brooke's interview with Shameless a year after that experience, she explained how important it was for her to deliberately show her Aboriginality on screen. I pretty much told production, I said, look, you know, I come from a very strong Aboriginal heritage and I knew 100% that I was going to be the first Aboriginal contestant. Like, I just kind of knew that. And people would back me in this, but that shirt that I wore is like my favourite shirt. Like, I wear that practically everywhere. So it wasn't like a statement as like, hey, like I'm wearing it just for this I moment. This. Yeah. Yeah. Channel 10. Yeah. Exactly. I wear that all the time. And like I wore a couple of different outfits. Like I wore it with overalls, like I wore it with something else. So it was just for me, like it's just a normal T-shirt that I put on that I love and adore. And lucky it just like, it just represents me in just one whole person mm. when I put that on. Mm. But yeah, you're you're right. So I was like, why, why can't I wear this? And even if they turned around and said, oh, look, you can't wear that. I would have left. I would have been like, screw you guys. I'm not here. Like, I can't wear a shirt with my flag on it. It'd just be like anyone else wearing a shirt on their flag. Are they allowed to do it? Yeah. So I knew that they'd have no problem with it, but I was also like super proud to do it. 
Clearly, cultural representation is severely lacking in Australian mainstream media, which is something lawyer and Miss Universe Australia Priya Saral hopes to help change through her day job in public policy. You find people talking a lot more about, you know, cultural diversity, representation, kind of women's rights, but then there's a huge backlash from the other side as well. You know, the, the opposition grows louder. They, they get a little bit more aggressive because they feel it. they're losing power. They're, they're losing this dead they have, you know, in society. The way I kind of approach everything that I do in life, and it's a very kind of principled approach. I don't have like a five-year game plan um, just because I don't think it's very realistic given that I've already said that my interests are so diverse, <laughs> is that if I feel like I'm contributing valuably to society in any way, whether it's through government, through Miss Universe Australia, through any other avenue, any other opportunity that arises, I will do it. And at the end of you know my life, when I'm at the, at the nursing home, looking back, thinking, oh, you know, what did I do? Like, what am I proud of? Like, that's what I want to think of and say, hey, that's awesome. I can't believe I did that. When Brooke Boney was a kid, working in the media was a dream of hers. But in her interview with the girls during isolation, Brooke recalls limiting herself and her capabilities as a young Indigenous Australian because there was no clear path paved before her. I don't think that I ever imagined that I would be in a job where I got to talk to people who I really admired all the time when I was little. And I think part of that is the burden of low expectations that people have about Aboriginal kids and kids from the country. You know, like all of the things that make life difficult already are compounded when you have people just not expecting very much from you. So like teachers saying that you're not smart enough or treating you differently or I had a lot, I was really lucky. Like I did have a lot of really, really good teachers who believed in me. But, you know, to think that the things that I aspired too, when I was younger would be like, I don't know, marrying a coal miner and opening up a hairdressing business or doing an apprenticeship. And there's certainly not, nothing wrong with that. I think that that's a, an excellent life. But it's certainly really different from the dreams that I have now. And I think that like limiting someone's idea of themselves is, is really, really sad. It's an awful thing to do to people. And we seem to do it a lot to kids of colour. I just don't want to go back to being poor and being like how I grew up I always have that thing where I'm like okay if I don't do it then you know it's going to be even harder for the next person and I want to make it easier for them and you know I think that that's a pretty good motivation to just keep trying and trying and trying so I studied at UTS I went through the like the Jumbunna Indigenous program so like that was a really excellent support network but you have to remember that like no one in my family had or like in my lineage, my uncle went to university in Armadale maybe like 10 or maybe 20 years ago or something. But like, you know, my mum hadn't done it. My grandparents hadn't done it. I hadn't seen anyone in my dad's family do that. So like going to university is a brand new thing. It's something that you can't quite conceive of as an Aboriginal kid because, you know, you learn things from the people around you whether or not it's a conscious thing. And so you can only sort of be what you can see. And so... Going to university as an Aboriginal kid is something that's really challenging. And so having support networks like the Jumbana Group or like whatever the university association is for Aboriginal kids in each city is, they're so important because they help you get through. And so I went to uni with their help and then I started journalism and then I, once I got in, I just bloody hustled. <laughs> I just kept asking people for jobs. I did the Koori Radio Breakfast Show when I was at uni 
And I worked at the ABC as well. And I did shifts at Trenary too. So I just worked and worked and worked. And then before I'd even finished, I think I was like at the end of my second year, I was doing an ABC like cadetship program while I was studying. And then NITV asked me if I wanted to go and work for them. And I said, yes. And then a couple of months later, they asked me if I wanted to go to Canberra and be their political correspondent. And I was absolutely shitting myself, but I said yes. And I went. And then the same week that I started, Kevin Rudd decided that he wanted to try to roll Julia Gillard. I was like, you people are crazy. Like, what is going on? And I just remember, like, I was such a political nerd anyway. Like, I loved finding out about what was going on down there. And then to be a part of it, I was just like, this is actually nuts. I feel like I'm in an episode of House of Cards. Just a few weeks ago, Mission Zara were joined by food critic Melissa Leong. And being the staunch MasterChef fan that I am, that interview is one of my all-time favourites. But there was another reason that episode resonated with me and no doubt many other women as much as it did. Melissa is the first female judge on MasterChef Australia, yes, but she's also the first person of colour to fill such a role on Australian commercial television. For me now, I can't not be who I am, which is to be an outspoken woman and a supporter of other women. It's to be proudly, you know, the child of Chinese migrants from Singapore. It is to be someone who has never felt like they fit in until, you know, until I realised that, what am I fitting into? I've, I've never really felt secure in myself until I owned that, you know, and that was, you know, maybe a, maybe a sort of not even a decade ago that I really started to come into my own. I think that's a, a common experience through women who are in their 30s as you start to kind of grapple and accept, you know, the, the good and the bad parts of who you are. But, yeah, look, I'm, I'm really proud to be where I am now and to be able to, you know, pull other women up with me and support other women as well and and especially people that have come from other cultural backgrounds that have a similar experience to me to encourage people to own the richness of their heritage because it's really powerful stuff. I don't actually feel a lot of pressure with this job. I feel very comfortable in this job. I feel very happy to be here. So I do, I, I get up and I go to work every day and I'm so excited to be there and I, I just do my job. I guess the the external considerations of a role with a profile like this is that's new and that's something that you know we've discussed you know on on social media is the incredible scrutiny that women are put under when they dare to stick their head out above what's considered acceptable and with that comes a great army of wonderful humans that are there to support you and you also have detractors you have rather disappointingly you know women's tabloid magazines that just want to look for some kind of you know salacious angle that they can sell their you know their publications with and peddling in lies and dragging women down is so utterly disappointing to me because I don't believe in it it's just such a silly notion why would you why would we do that to ourselves Marley Silva is the founder of Titters for Titters, and when she came onto the show in October 2019, she took us back to the day she decided to create her very own media platform, when the mainstream was ignoring the things she believed needed to be covered. 2018, the NAIDOC theme. So NAIDOC is our uh, kind of 
penultimate week of celebration for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. I call it the Black Christmas in July because that's when it is. <laughs> so the lead up to that week and also across the entire year, there's a theme that kind of guides a lot of the discussion we have in our community. And last year's theme was Because of Her We Can. And what that saw was this incredible 12 months, and I've had quite a few people say to me it was their favourite NAIDOC in their lifetime, where we were focused on our women. We were focused on our aunties and our grandmothers and our female leaders from the past who were on the front lines of the civil rights movement and came home to feed five kids and, and did that. You know, it's just this incredible inherent ability to care and to push forward for us as a people. It was amazing. And at the same time, I was doing my honours research at uni and it was focused on the representation of Aboriginal women in film and television. So my entire 2018 was just focused on our women, focused on writing about them, watching films where they're, you know, represented in a really beautiful way. And then also when it's, they're not given justice. And I got towards the end of that and thought, oh my gosh, we've got like two months before we get to 2019 and we have a new theme and people are going to stop talking about our women and there's so many stories that haven't been told and there's everyday women who are doing something all the time. I need to do something about it. And I've worked for Aboriginal organisations exclusively most of my life. I've worked in the non-profit sector and through one role in particular, I had a, a pretty awesome opportunity to do a summer business course at the uh, Stanford University in California and in that I'd never been kind of business minded or anything but it's planted a seed of of being able to do something and being able to build something of my own that could have impact. So I kind of woke up one day and across the breakfast table to my sister said I've got this idea I'm going to start an Instagram page and we're going to champion Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and it's going to be amazing. And she kind of rolled her eyes and looked at me like I was crazy because I kind of have big ideas all the time. It's just not that often that I kind of go through with them. So I started the page and the name, so Tito is a slang word for sister. So it really is Sisters for Sisters. Um, that's the, the name and I, that's what came to me first and then I just started it and my sister's an artist so I was like can I take some pictures of your artwork and we'll use that to make a logo and it's going to look all flash and everything and within a week we had a thousand followers and we quickly surpassed my own followers very quickly and I was like gee this is all right this people are excited about this and the right people were getting behind us you know people I guess Aboriginal influences that we we have now, which is really cool, started following us very early on. And the women who were following, like the everyday women who were following us were so open and raw with us and they just were so hungry to share their stories. And that's really the inherent reason that we were successful is because these women were coming to us with open arms being like, hey, this is what I've been through and I want to share it because I know that other people have been through it and there's something they could learn from it. Of course, this goes beyond race and culture too. Trans rights activist Georgie Stone knows the frustration of underrepresentation all too well, which is why she decided to carve out her own space in the mainstream, just like Marley did with Titters for Titters. Georgie joined us at the very beginning of the year and spoke with Mission Zara about the importance of trans visibility on a young drama like Neighbours and how she clawed her way in in the best way possible. My dad, well, actually both my parents have been on Neighbours before, but my dad was most recently on Neighbours in 2016. So his agent knew 
the executive producer and had the email of the executive producer of Neighbours. And so I I, I was to- tossing up doing this for a long time, like since I was 16, since watching Dad on the show and looking at the teen group that they had, I was thinking, God, it would be so great to have a trans character in the teen group. I think that would that would be really amazing but I was too scared to do it and also I wanted to finish school and then it was at the beginning of year 12 and the we were getting like career advice and talking about university and where you want to go and I'd been telling people that that I wanted to be a journalist because that was something that I really loved and I was obsessed with Carrie Bickmore. And, um, <laughs> we all are, don't yeah, I was going to say, Hermione Granger and Carrie Bickmore. <laughs> I feel like that's Absolutely. the basic bitch's guide to like yeah. feminism and Absolutely. girl crushes. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. But then I, was, I just knew that I really loved acting mm. and so I – went to my dad and said, if I write a letter, could you get this to the executive producer of Neighbours? And he said, yes. So I wrote a letter during one of my free periods and just detailing who I was, what I'd done in terms of advocacy, I, that I thought it was a really good idea to have a trans character. These are all the reasons why. Here's a possible storyline that could work and, you know, kind of a character profile. I did all this research about the show and the history, I looked through um, all the characters that had been on the show <laughs> and looking at a name that hadn't been chosen yet because there so were so smart. many people. And I found Emma because I love the name Emma. And then I got my dad to give it to his agent to give it to the executive producer. And then two hours later, I got an email from the executive producer saying, this is a really good idea. Thank you for reaching out to me. Let's set up an audition. And so then a few weeks later, I auditioned in front of the casting director and they gave this like old script from a a few years prior for me to read. And I did that and then I didn't hear anything for a few months. And then I got an email saying, just hold on, we're waiting for the right time. And then another few months went past and then I got an email saying, hey, Georgie, are you still interested in being on Neighbours? Fuck yes. Fuck yes. yes. (laughs) Absolutely. And then about two months after that, I had a meeting with the executive producer about how we could get this character into Neighbours. And the writers had come up with their own storyline, taking kind of elements from my one and then they changed the name to Mackenzie which I was you know fine about (laughs) it's like no I'm not coming on your show because I hate the name (laughs) name Mackenzie like no it'll be Emma or nothing um and then about a month after that I met with the writers and we talked through the storyline and things that I liked about and how we could change it to make it more realistic and that was really amazing and then I got the scripts for a few months before starting to film just so I could look over it and just edit things that that didn't feel right or some of the language so you know it more represented what was I suppose reflecting my experience and a few kind of concepts that people could learn from like dead naming or bathroom access and all that kind of stuff and yeah and then about so a bit over a year after I, I originally sent the email, I started filming. And then there's disability advocate and writer Carly Finlay. 
Carly has a skin condition called ichthyosis and has spent much of her career pushing back against the narrow-minded, archaic and often disable-phobic media. It either ostracises disabled people or exploits them, she said on the show in January 2019. Our ex-friend told me that I can either be mainstream or do activism. I can't do both. And and, and I guess from then... um, I felt really pushed out and I felt like I was made to choose and I don't speak to those people anymore, Um, some of it through my choice, most of it not. Um, And it's been really, really hard, lonely, really lonely and, um, you know, I I guess that they think my work's problematic because they don't, I'm not doing it in a certain way and um, people... I think some some disabled people don't want you to win awards or don't want you to have mainstream success. But but then what are we fighting for? You know, I'm getting paid. I'm in the mainstream. That's what everyone has been fighting for. And I also don't want to take over someone else's voice. I want to put voices forward. And I've tried to do that in my book, in interviewing people and, um, you know, showcasing other voices. There's a whole list of people at the back that people can refer to. Um, and I've said that this is just my opinion. It's not everyone else's. For a while, uh, not recently, because I tell everyone to fuck off. Um, but, <laughs> that is the correct way to go about things. <laughs> but there was, a, there, there was a, a period, probably for about three years, I would say, that every one or two months, I would get a request to go on an exploitative show, um, like Body Bazaar or Embarrassing Bodies or Medical Incredible or some show. And, and it would all be, it would be pe- weird people like on Instagram, hey, I'm a journalist and I follow you and you're so inspirational and we want to show you, we want to raise awareness. And so, I've always said no and and I've developed this series of questions which are in the book and I send them back and the questions are things like, you know, do you pay? Will will you zoom in on my skin and and make it awkward? How do you speak about disability? Do you have a disabled narrator? Are you able to get me to narrate it? Can I put this on my blog? You know, so then they don't know what to say and then I get like no response back. But I know a lot of people with ichthyosis, skin conditions, um, facial differences and other disability who think that awareness raising is absolute key, especially the parents, and they just put their kids forward on these shows. And I think the problem is twofold because it's the show that's exploitative with the title and the content, Embarrassing Bodies, sets the tone. And also the commentary around it is, is problematic. Disability advocate and influencer Jess Quinn knows there's a difference between diversity and inclusivity in campaigns and shared with the girls in September last year why brand authenticity is key. I've been really lucky with the brands I've worked with. I think there's been opportunities that have come through that I haven't taken that definitely would have gone down that path. And I spoke at a forum the other day with Fashion Week and we spoke about diversity and inclusion and a huge thing, a topic that I speak about a lot is the idea of tokenism. Um, and this just isn't in social media, but you know, the amount of times that I'm the clearly the token tech, the diversity box The poster girl, girl for poster diversity, girl. yes. Yeah. At a photo shoot is quite um, hilarious. And on the panel, um, we had a plus size model as well who's gone through the same thing she's often the token plus size model at the photo shoots and it's a really hard one because I'm like yay they're doing something but also a are you using this because you know body image and body positivity and all those moments is super trendy so you know it's going to go well for you or are you doing this authentically you can totally tell and it's hard to even turn down the ones that you can tell aren't authentic because at the end of the day, the young girl walking to school seeing myself or someone like me on a billboard, that's going to make her feel better whether it's tokenism or not. So, And tokenism is at least one step in the right direction. So it's a really hard balance to find, but it's a very interesting conversation. Something I'm huge about at the moment is 
is the idea of diversity, but also the idea of inclusion, because I think they're two very different things. And I heard a really great thing the other day, and it said something like um, diversity diversity is being invited to the party and inclusion is being invited to dance. And I was like, I really like that, because you can be diverse, you can represent all sorts of people, but if you're not... I guess making them feel welcome, or this is this goes for everything in the workplace and media everywhere. If you're not making them feel welcome, if, or if you're not representing them in the right in the right way, then that's not inclusion. You know, you're kind of just ticking a diversity box and moving to along. make yourself feel better rather totally. than make the world a better place. Totally, that quote's awesome. It's really cool, and I think that speaks so many volumes for so much volume for particularly in the workplace because you need to be inclusive as well as being diverse because they are different things. It's plain to see our media industry is saturated with men. Just ask sports journalist and commentator Nerily Meadows, who joined us for a shameless interview in March this year. Quite unsurprisingly, cracking into footy circles as a woman and speaking up when you're in them isn't the easiest. For the most part, I've had just the best time of my life. But there are still, you know, those situations that I just think people just don't realise the day-to-day things that women go through, particularly in a male-dominated industry. And, you know, there'll be times where you'll rock up to a sporting event and the female toilets won't be opened, you know. Like, it's just basic stuff that you'd have to point out to people. But for the most part, I've had a really positive experience. But, yeah, I think the main thing that I always say is when a woman does say something, please just listen to her because we tend not to. Mm. So when we do actually say something it's usually there's a good reason for it it's that old thing that men are bosses and women are bossy if a man walks into a room and says this is the way that we're going to do it you know that okay if a woman says this is the way that we're going to do it, it's like all right settle down she thinks a lot of herself yeah. yeah yeah so it is so obvious that you love your job but I, what I wanted to do is read a quote of yours back to you about this because we've got here very quickly so I'm going to do it anyway about the trickiest aspects of working in a male-dominated industry and it doesn't just have to be sport I know that there are a lot of women listening who would experience a similar thing and you made comment on Chris Gale who is a West Indian cricket star who made some pretty gross comments to Mel McLaughlin on, on camera a couple of years ago and you said he's a repeat offender and he does it purely to humiliate that person in the public arena he does it constantly and he has done it over a number of years you can say that Chris Gale is never going to change that's fine and he probably won't but what should change is the reaction to what Chris Gale does it's not funny it's just not why do you choose to be loud about this then with everything that we've just spoken about how you know we do consider men to be bosses and women to be bossy like knowing that people might not like what you have to say and find you unlikable because of it that's one of the rare times that I have and it was one of the hardest experiences I've gone through and it was for a lot of the girls who chose to speak up at that time the main reason why I chose to speak up was because Mel's a mate of mine and she was going through a lot as well herself and at the end of the day, you stand up for your mates and you back your mates in. And that's my main motivation for what happened on that particular occasion. And the other thing that I did say at the time was I love watching Chris Gale play. I love that he's an entertainer. He is an entertaining human being as well. He, You can be entertaining without being offensive. And he doesn't need to put women in the positions that he does and yeah, and he's played at that you know point in time as well. He'd played international cricket for a long time. So he knew that there are cultural differences around the world and all those sorts of things. And it just frustrates me. Don't get defensive. Just say, oh, God, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to. Mm-hmm. And then that's it. It's end of. Mm-hmm. We're not going to bang on about it or anything like that. It was just a particular occasion where I just think 
Well, probably enough's enough because it had happened to all of us. It, like he, he was, it, it had happened to every single woman in Australia who had ever done an interview with him live on air. It really had. It happened to me. It happened to, you know, so many girls. And so I just th- I thought it was time where I was like, come on, can we just stop laughing now? Because it just feels a bit, feels a bit high school. Yeah. Like, it's not, it's just not funny. Performer M. Rasciano found that creating feminist talkback radio was much harder than she initially expected. In her chat with Mission Zara in July last year, she spoke about that defeated realisation and the flood of rage that overwhelmed her as a result. When I signed on to do the radio, I wanted to do feminist FM talkback. And that slot has been so hard to rate in because when Kyle and Jack left, it, they just took all the ratings with them. And today FM have had real trouble feeling it. And I walked into that job so arrogant thinking, give me a year, give me a year. I'm good at radio. I've got this. And then we did a great year of radio with, with Harley Breen and I'm still really proud of the radio and it's, it was unique and funny and everything he and I wanted. It didn't rate. It just yeah. didn't rate. It cut through on social though. It I really remember, did. I remember how much I saw across we social We kind of media. pioneered videos. Yeah. Yeah, and um, it did really well online but that's not the metrics that mm. they really care about. So – Hallie left and then, yeah, I was Ed Cavalier and, and Grant Denny came on and two people I'd never kind of worked with. And then the direction of the show changed and it had to change because they wanted to try something else. And I felt like I felt really ripped off because that's not what I agreed in, to do and not what I signed on to do. So I guess I started kind of probably acting like a petulant toddler. Like I'm just saying, no, I don't want to do that. It's not what we agreed. It's not what we agreed. I was saying no a lot at work. And I was having to swallow a lot of the shit that I was feeling about the content we were putting out. Because it's it it was fine, but it's not what I would have chosen to do. And I'm, I'm I was 39 doing stuff I was doing in radio when I was 24, mm. and I just didn't want to do it anymore. So I kind of got taken aside at work and said, "Look, your anger is making everyone really uncomfortable." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" And I thought I was hiding it quite well. And it turns out I wasn't. Um, and then I guess I the, the show came about really and truly because I was crossing the road in Clifton Hill in Melbourne um, at Stotts, the homewares place. I was six months pregnant. I was a cello and a truck driver yelled out the window to me, why don't you smile, love? And I turned around and I yelled back at him, why don't you break your own arm up and fist yourself up the ass, you fucking asshole? And cello looked at me and the truck driver looked at me. <laughs> And I was like, whoa. It was like that came from another place. And I felt like if I could have climbed that with that truck and punched that guy in the face, I would have. I felt so mad that he thought it was okay to tell me to smile, like I was only there for decoration, that it's okay to tell another human to smile, even if they don't want to, that that's all women are here for. Like I was having all these feelings. That's all women are here for, just for the visual pleasure of men. How dare he? And then I was like, I was like hyperventilating until I was like, what is wrong? And I said, I don't know. I just know that I'm feeling increasingly pissed off. And so I started asking all the women around me how they were feeling. And I got this grip on the arm, white knuckle, me too. For most women with a public profile, their bodies become subject to ridiculous and intense scrutiny. Georgia Love knows that firsthand. In her interview with the girls in August 2019, the journalist and former bachelorette touched on bikini pap shots and body shame and the chatter around it all. You did say just before that you choose not to wear bikinis and it's funny because we actually loved a piece that you wrote for women.com.au recently. I'll read out the quote to you. It's a little bit of a long one, but I really like this and I want you to talk to it for a little bit. 
I was photographed on a beach without my knowledge wearing a bikini. I found out about it when this photo was plastered on the front page of a tabloid magazine next to a bevy of beauties absolutely rocking their bikinis. The caption alongside my photo was a quote I'd given months earlier, obviously unrelated to this picture, saying I'm happy with how I look. The inference was that I should not be. Since that day, I have only, and I mean only, worn one-piece bathers in public or very high-waisted bikinis, even when I'm in my own backyard. All my normal bikinis went in the bin. That picture, alongside the caption, made me feel horrendous. I'm a confident person, but for the first time in my life, I felt truly fat, horrible, and shamed. Not ashamed, but shamed. How is that, feeling that? Oh, horrendous. And to give even more background that I didn't give in that article, just because it kind of wasn't necessary, um, the photo that was taken had been taken on my birthday and it was published on my mum's birthday. It was our first birthday without my mum, like of her birthday, first time we celebrated without her and I woke up to that. Um, On mum's birthday, I woke up to that article and it was just horrendous. I was beside myself and I've got an incredibly thick skin I don't let articles or trolls or anything affect me I really don't I'm I'm quite good at that but this was horrendous it was such an invasion of my privacy first of all but also just the feeling I mean I would show you the magazine cover because I I want to put it into context but I also don't because it's awful it was a, a front page of all bachelorettes so people who'd been the bachelorette and um girls who'd been on the bachelor and they were all from photo shoots they'd done during their seasons so they were all people like freaking sophie monk for christ's sake in a gold bikini looking ridiculous and then all the girls from the bachelor who'd done photo shoots and then there was me with my wet curly hair after a bowl of pasta walking into the water with my white belly hanging out and i was in amongst all of them and it was just awful and I I I hate that I felt so bad about it because yeah for those who don't know what I look like I am an eight to ten I'm you know I'm a small girl if anything I'm, I'm smaller than the average Australian woman and I was shamed like this and I felt awful about myself imagine how the normal person feels how the average Australian sized woman feels or how a size six woman feels who doesn't like the way she looks anything anyone if I felt like this how many other people must feel like this as well? Evidently, women are constantly minimised in the media, their abilities underestimated time and time again. For the absolute gun of a Survivor contestant, Brooke Jowett, who came onto the show in March this year, her narrative on Survivor Australia was defined by the man she'd formed a relationship with, Lockie Gilbert. Something that's really bugged me since watching the show back is like Lockie and I were on par the entire time. We were both making decisions if not, I was kind of making decisions more than him. But the way that it's shown is that it's Lockie's alliance and Lockie's making the big calls and I'm just his little sidekick who's there just to look pretty and mm. tell him, well done. But that's just not how it was at all. Like if, if anything, we were yeah we were both on the same level and yeah, watching it back being like, Brooke's hiding in his shadow, she's not making her own moves. I'm like, this is part of my move is being in this power couple, which is making – like all the decisions. I'm making the decisions right now. So yeah, that's something that has really bothered me. And even so now I'm just sick of waking up every morning. I Google myself every day. Sorry, that's really embarrassing. I'm sorry anyone on a reality (laughs) TV show would be Googling themselves every day, particularly when the Daily Mail sidebar of shame is like populated with stories of their face. Yeah, absolutely. So every morning I wake up now and I type my name in and everything that comes up is Lockie Gilbert. And I'm like, to be honest, I... I just want an article that is not related to Lockie. Like, I 
played a, I played a fierce game. I've played a game that I'm really proud of and Lockie was only part of that. Mm. So there's no part of my story right now in the public that is just Brooke. Like it's always Brooke and Lockie, Lockie and Brooke. Finally, I'd like to play you guys some penetrating words from feminist writer Clementine Ford. She was the very first Shameless interview this year, and it was an interview I learned a heap from. Here, Clementine addresses strength as a woman in the public eye, and what motivates her to keep her voice loud and unwavering. I'm not very brave when it comes to other things. Yes. You know, I've got a lot of insecurities and a lot of my private life is riddled with terrible fear about, you know, my own value and my own worth and, you know, romance and I have all the same problems as any other woman who's been raised in a patriarchy and who thinks that they'll never be good enough. But publicly, I guess, I just have a very strong sense that what I'm saying and doing is right. And I I kind of, the more people get angry about it, the more determined I am to agitate them further, I guess. And also, there's no, there's only so much mud that can be flung at you before you just literally no more mud will stick. You feel like you know? Teflon. Yeah. 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 I mean, the, you're, when you're, once you're covered in mud, the mud cannot touch you anymore. <laughs> That's all for today's bonus episode of Shameless with me, Annabelle Lee. If you enjoyed any of these In Conversation interviews, you can find the full versions along with our entire backlog of chats on our website, www.shamelessthepodcast.com. Don't fret, Mission Zara will be back on the 29th of June, but until then, feel free to check out our new Shameless Book Club and get stuck into our June book, Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo. At the start of every month, Mish, Zara and myself are picking a book for the community to read and we'll be jumping on a podcast episode together at the end of that month to talk about it with you guys. I will pop a link to join the Book Club Facebook group in the show notes and we'll be back in this space yet again next week for one last bonus episode of Shameless before the girls get back from break and resume regular programming. Yay! Not that I haven't thoroughly enjoyed this time with you all. Okay, anyway, bye! Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If That is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one. 